the police came onto campus and um, arrested people, abducted people. There were tortures. There was a lot of torture. There was assassinations. A more profound and unexpected interruption in our um, our business and what we envisage we would be doing. You can't imagine. If you start a fashion brand today and you don't have purpose or sustainability um, in some ways built into the DNA of what you're doing, you're at a massive disadvantage. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Paul Funsale. Paul Funsale is the co-founder and chief creative officer of The Conduit, a home for a membership community of people passionate about social change. Previously... Paul served in South Africa's post-apartheid Truth and Reconciliation Commission and co-founded the International Center for Transitional Justice, a nonprofit that works in countries that have endured human rights violations in conflict. Paul is also a co-founder and CEO of Mayette, an ethical luxury fashion brand. Welcome, Paul. Delighted to be here with you both. Thank you. So let's dive in. I am lucky to be a member of the Conduit Club, which is a community based out of London, but also potentially expanding that you created and conceptualized um, to bring together thought leaders and social change makers um, and bring really that community together. And so um, I'm really glad to have you on our podcast to talk more about The Conduit, but also your incredible background. Um, so I would love uh, to hear from you first. I mean, we're speaking to you in a very um, interesting time, an unprecedented time um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I know that that um, has had an impact on The Conduit and um, your business. So if we could just perhaps start there and then dive in a little further, um, tell us more about The Conduit in your own words, but also um, how are you com- continuing to foster this community of change makers when that community cannot meet in person? So The Conduit is a community. We have about 3,600 members. We have a 40,000 square foot building on Conduit streets in, in Mayfair in London. Um, And the purpose of The Conduit is to gather together people who, as you said, are passionate about positive social change, to give them about 250 talks or pieces of content a year where people focus on solutions to the world's grand challenges, whether that's climate or health and wellness and nutrition or economic opportunity or the rights of women or new ways of of skills and learning, um, or or equality and justice. And then through the delivery of this content, which is really solutions-oriented, to galvanize people into action, to help them network, support each other, 
invest in each other's businesses. And it's driven by a sort of rather simple idea that um, nothing of any consequence happens with people acting entirely on their own and that we are more effective when we collaborate and act in groups and draw on each other's strengths and weaknesses. Um, and that people want to be able to connect and to support each other and share inspiration and solve problems together and to find a home and a community where you can do that, but also have a wonderful drink and eat good food and listen to good music is kind of part of what The Conduit does. Now, we've been, you know, profoundly affected by Corona. And, you know, in January and February, we were, you know, we're uh, 15 months into the, the life of the conduit. So it's a new community. But as the numbers show, we've attracted an exceptional group of people, as evidenced by you, who've joined. And um, we were really having two of the best months of our, of our existence and then we went from that to being ordered to close by the government, um, you know, having 90% um, of our staff on furlough and having to pivot to doing everything that we're doing digitally, um, waiting for the lockdown in London to end and being able to return to our building. So a more profound and unexpected interruption in our um, our business and what we envisage we would be doing, you can't imagine. I, yeah, I can, I can only imagine. But you've, you've done such a great job of bringing so much content on to online and really engaging your community that way. So maybe tell us a little bit, what, what are you working on and what, what are you having hope for in the future just in terms of how to foster the community of change makers that you've already spent a tremendous amount of time and energy um, bringing together? So I guess when we, when we were closed, uh, the first thing we said is, you know, we have this incredible resource. We have 3,600 members. They're people who are generous, compassionate, outward looking. How do we make sure that we harness that resource, even if we can't for the time being be physically together? So we alighted on an idea which was triggered by one of our members who is, um, works for Ralph Lauren calling up and saying uh, a hospital in London, which is the, one of the premier um, cancer research institutes and cancer treatment centers in the world, um, was having a real problem because people were having to work much longer hours. Um, they, when they knocked off there was partly as a result of stockpiling, not enough food on the shelves of stores and the stores were often closed and they weren't getting healthy meals and frontline NHS workers in the national health system here, um, they are the people who are literally the dividing line between life and death for people who become critically ill um, with the coronavirus. And so we mobilized our community um, I reached out to the CEO of Gale's Bakery um, and we reached out to a range of other people and said, can we deliver food as fast as we can to frontline health healthcare workers? Um, and with the support of Ralph Lauren and with the mobilization of our community, um, we now are you know, approaching 10,000 meals that we've delivered to healthcare workers. Um, we're working with Sir Tom Hughes Hallett 
who is the founder of Helpforce, which has been appointed by the government as the NGO, which is surging volunteers into the NHS, which is right now facing an unprecedented surge of critically ill patients. And so what we're doing is helping to mobilize people and resources and requests into the NHS at this very, very um, critical moment. So on one level, there's this devastating disease, but on another level, you see this match of generosity and compassion and empathy, which come from people when you, you know, when you ask. And then the second thing we're doing is we're doing our own programming. And so that really has three dimensions. The first is we do a daily briefing on the corona crisis with a public health expert to try and get a little bit behind the headlines, give a little bit of reasoned and dispassionate, balanced analysis of, of where this is going, both the good news and the, and the, the difficult and hard and tragic news. Um, secondly, I'm heading up a, a section, a segment called Build Back Better, which is focusing on how we can not go back to the status quo ante when this is all over, but how we can try and get back to a, a world that is better for people in the planet when this crisis is over. And then thirdly, we're doing our regular programming that you know all too well on all of our different themes, um, getting our members to... Yesterday, we did a film screening of a film about the trial of Ratko Mladic, the infamous war criminal and genocidaire in the former Yugoslavia. And we had the filmmakers on and, um, you know, we watched the film virtually via link. And then the filmmakers discussed the film and then our members asked a bunch of questions and it was a kind of awesome thing that happened all online. So it's, it's a range of different forms of programming. How did you watch the film together? And um, no, we distributed the link a week before and then everybody watched as like a little piece of homework. And then by the time we did our, our um, session, everybody had watched it and came to the session to be able to ask the filmmakers very smart and thoughtful questions. I see. I see. Yeah. And I've been seeing that in the UK, they've had this volunteer force that I read was 750,000 people. Is that right? They hoped to get 250,000 people who would volunteer and triple the number volunteered. And in fact, part of what Sir Tom Hughes Hallett is trying to do is take this overwhelming outpouring of civic activism, as it were, and channel it into the places where it's needed. Because it's no small feat to uh, align the kinds of um, assistance that volunteers are prepared to give with where the need is, and that requires careful organization, and that's what he's doing, and, and, and we're helping him in that endeavor. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I, I want to dive, I want to go in a couple directions, but I first want to dive into your background. It seems that social impact has always been important to you, and you know, you're even kind of going a step farther in serving beyond just the community and mobilizing your community at the conduit. So you've had a career that spanned many industries and sectors. Um, you started your career as a lawyer, as Ed pointed out, in South Africa. Um, this was a post-apartheid commission set up for public hearings about the violence and human rights abuses of apartheid. So tell us, what was it like to work on a government project of the scale? It seems like you're very familiar now in the UK working with government, but really, what drew you to that type of work? 
you know, what drew me to that work was really, um, I, uh, when I was, when I first went to university uh, at the age of 18, I entered the university that was, I suspect somewhat different to what the usual university or college experience might be in the UK or the US. Um, you know, our university was at the forefront of the fight against apartheid. There were student activists who every day were marching against the police. The police came onto campus and, um, arrested people, abducted people, there were torture, there was a lot of torture, there was assassinations. So I emerged into my kind of adult life at a moment of intense conflict and activism. And I started working um, with mothers whose children had been abducted and disappeared and killed by the security forces and really gathered them together in church basements, um, helping them um, uh, lobby for truth and for justice in relation to what had happened to their, their children. And so when the change happened in South Africa um, and Nelson Mandela was released and then we, he was elected as our first democratically elected president, there was the sense that we couldn't sweep the past under the carpets and simply ignore all the crimes that occurred. But on the other hand, if we were to um, look back in retributive anger and seek to prosecute and punish everybody, our very fragile democracy would be ripped apart. And so I had the great privilege of serving as the executive secretary for South Africa's Truth Commission, um, which gave 24,000 victims an opportunity to tell the story, which listened to confessions from over 7,000 perpetrators, and which tried to chronicle how it was that these crimes occurred who did what to whom, who knew what, who authorized what, and how it happened, really as a way of making sure that our country um, would never forget this human rights abuse and would resolve to ensure it never happened. And for the audience out there, did it work? Did that really serve to bring everyone together, or was there a lot of still social unrest around justice that wasn't served? One of the great miracles of South Africa is, you know, notwithstanding our country being subjected to, you know, centuries of colonial rule and, um, you know, over a, over a century of, you know, structural racial discrimination, when apartheid ended, there was no widespread violence, recrimination, revenge, um, uh, and it was partly driven by the sheer quality of the leadership um, of both Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu, two Nobel Prize winners, who realized in their infinite wisdom that the country would not work if they, as the new generation of leaders, um, adopted a discourse of violence and, and recrimination and retribution. Um, and so... The country has many challenges, but it has not descended into a civil war. And by and large, people live together um, with a tremendous sense of tolerance um, and interaction. And the Truth Commission played its role because it was like a pressure valve. It gave victims of the most terrible crimes a chance to have their stories acknowledged and their suffering recognized. And it gave perpetrators a vehicle 
to confess to what they did. Um, and that doesn't sweep away the violence or the victimization. Um, you never bring back a loved one who's been killed, but it did help take the rough edges uh, of some of the of the conflicts. And, and I think that proved to be very valuable for our country. I find you fascinating because you also started a fashion label called Mayette, which is incredible. I still have a couple pieces that I love from many, many years ago. And I think that now we're living, well, I think when we come out of this pandemic, hopefully we go back to a world where we do care about sustainability, but fashion was the next frontier. Um, but you started Mayette many years ago and you transitioned from having actually run a nonprofit after the Truth Commission um, to co-founding um, the company. So if you could tell us a little bit more about that transition, um, I think our listeners would love to know what kind of encouraged you to take on that, quote, second life. So after the Truth Commission, um, as you mentioned, I set up um, what became quite a large not-for-profit that worked in over 30 countries around the world, helping nations deal with a legacy of massive atrocity. And we really tried to take the lessons of the South African uh, truth and reconciliation process and help um, both victims and policymakers in countries um, chart wise ways of dealing with the past. Um, and about eight years into that, um, I won the Skoll Award for Social Entrepreneurship, and I was chosen as a young global leader and started going to Davos. And I suddenly encountered a group of people who were using entrepreneurship and markets and business to try and do good in the world. And I had a little bit of an aha moment because I had previously, you know, set up a not-for-profit which started from zero and was raising $20 million a year. So quite a big not-for-profit with, you know, large staff. And I sort of got the sense of I was always on the end of the philanthropic part of how capital worked, taking the two or three or four percent of what people gave away and deploying that to try and achieve good in the world. And I said, well, what about the other 96, 97, 98%? How do we orient that amount of capital to try and um, achieve good in the world? Um, and so sort of tripped over into social entrepreneurship um, and decided to build a business and really chose fashion in part because all the countries that I'd worked in uh, around the world had this great bedrock of artisanship, um, people with incredible skills making exquisite products. And I thought that those products were underutilized and were not getting the value they deserved based on the skill that it took to produce them. Um, and partly because fashion is symbolic. It's about identity and people feel uh, things about what they wear in a way that has a lot of emotion in it. And I thought that if you could infuse purpose into fashion, you could build a, a powerful brand. Um, so that was the kind of origin story of Mayette. It's um, skilled artisans using um, rare skills from unusual places to build, to build a fashion brand. And you've since now sold it, is that right? 
No, actually, it still exists. Um, we've pivoted it in a in a kind of an interesting way. Um, we've gone from making our own products and collections to um, being a convener of up to 50 ethical and sustainable brands um, and helping to, pro- to create a marketplace for those brands, showcasing them in various retail locations. And most recently in, um, in Bista Village, which is one of the largest retail locations in the United Kingdom. Um, and we brought about 50 brands um, just before Christmas to show their wares. Um, and it's a very, very interesting collective model. We'll soon be taking them to um, Spain, uh, to China, um, to France, um, and showcasing this generation of brands who started online but are looking for physical locations in order to engage directly with, with consumers and customers. So, um, yeah, Mayet is still very much around. That's great. And just from your your perspective, where do you think the next frontier of fashion will go? Are you keeping a finger on that pulse? Yeah. Um, knee high, so I, below the knee, above the knee, where are we headed? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think that there's a little, you know, wherever you are on the knee, there's a, there's a brand for you. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think... Two things. One is if, if you start a fashion brand today and you don't have purpose or sustainability um, in some ways built into the DNA of what you're doing, you're at a massive disadvantage. And so one of the things I find most encouraging is looking at this group of entrepreneurs who are trying to tackle either social issues or climate issues or sustainability issues and how they build their brands. Um, they are all the smart brands are um, trying to offer firstly sell direct to consumers and cut out wholesale. Um, they're starting online because of the efficiencies entailed therein. They're doing one thing or a narrow range of things extremely well, and they're focusing on products which have good margins. So, you know. Warby Parker in eyewear, um, Rothy's and, um, you know, in shoes in particular, but also, um, you know, all of these kind of new sets of um, all birds, you know, an incredible, incredible brand that we're partnering with at the, at the conduit right now, which has come from nowhere and has a billion dollar valuation because it delivers a perfect product very well, to its consumers and has sustainable sustainability built into the core of what they do from the very beginning. Um, and I think those brands will survive and thrive. And the old legacy brands that produce four collections a year, uh, 90 SKUs, own, you know, put them down a runway, only produce 10% of them and engage in a whole bunch of wasteful practices from fashion shows to um, magazine advertising are going to die. And that's a, that's a good thing. That's a really interesting perspective. Um, just, I would love to hear more about you 
and what your morning routine looks like to take a little break and, and hear about what gets you up motivated for your days. You know, one of the, I mean, it, it's going to sound a little like corny, but it's really true. One of the things that has been most delightful about, about the conduit is um, no two days are the same. The group of people is really, truly exceptional, entrepreneurial, resourceful, thoughtful, generous. And so every day we are working on something new On any given day we'll have programming on regenerative agriculture, then sustainable fashion, then new ways of dealing with homelessness, then new forms of food, then artificial intelligence and molecular biology, then battery storage and electric vehicles, then distributed off-grid solar. And everybody's doing incredibly interesting things. Um, and so... Firstly, I'm just wildly curious as a human being. So to be exposed to that, I find thrilling. And then to be able to say, well, how can members of our community help you do better? And that was really a kind of lesson from, from Mayette. You know, setting up a brand and building a company, as you guys both know, is no small feat. And you need, you know, it's that old adage of, you know, being able to dance backwards in high heels you know you need to be able to raise your money build your product raise your capital get your supply chain measure your impact go to market on time acquire your first customers delight your first customers this is a really 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 hard thing to do 90 percent of businesses fail for this reason but your chances of succeeding are exponentially increased if there's a group of people who you can wrap around you to ask for help and advice and guidance and stop you making dumb mistakes. Um, and that really is what the conduit does um, on a daily basis. So it's just a, it's a privilege to show up for work. But Paul, we want to know, like when you wake up in the morning and you are getting ready to change the world, I have two questions for you. Number one, where do you stand on the traditional English breakfast? And number two, coffee, tea, or caffeine free? So I, um, I'm the, almost the first thing I do, like I make a beeline towards caffeine and uh, you do have an exquisite French press and really, you know, have a, a great cup of coffee is essential. Um, and then I try and have as um, small and lighter breakfast as possible. Um, and, you know, I think being hungry before lunch keeps you focused so English breakfast would, you know, cause me to be comatose. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. And you have four children, is that right? Three. Oh, three, three children. Yeah. 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 Um, and so you have a lot, you have a lot going on. How do you as an entrepreneur keep yourself from wanting to dive into every single, single topic that you hear about through these conduit conversations? That's a good question. You have so many options from where you stand to change the I think, world. Yeah, yeah. So I think the I've learned that the kind of discipline and focus is intrinsic to any successful business. And so in a way, you've got to focus on the core things that makes a place like The Conduit work. And the core of it all is your membership. 
and you have to recruit and attract the right members. Then you have to engage and delight and deliver real value to those members and do so in a way that is true to your values. Um, and that involves, you know, first and foremost, delivering world-class content to them, but also making the kind of hospitality experience, the food, the way you greet it, what you experience in the building, how the building treats you, how the staff in the building engage with you, um, a pleasant, delightful experience. And that is non-trivial, doing that. You know, you've got 160 staff. You're trying to deliver all of that all the time. It's really, really hard. And so making sure that you do all of that well. And because I'm the co-founder and chief creative officer, I spend most of my time trying to make sure that the the creative and the content and the program and the impact parts of that community are delivered up to our members in a way that they find valuable. And it means that I can't get into the weeds and everything that are happening, but I can use the time and energy I have to make the introductions and facilitate the connections. And then in a, in a way I can just get out the way because the people with real value to each other have been connected and then they can take it from there. Um, and obviously I can't do all of that. I have a very gifted team of people in our membership and our program department to help as well. But, but um, there is something very nice about facilitating generosity. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it makes you feel good yourself. What would your team say about your leadership style? What would they, how would they describe you as a leader? Well, if they were being generous or if they were being critical, um, if, they were, if they were generous, I think they would say that I'm, you know, motivating and inspirational and, um, uh, you know, encourage people to, to do, you know, difficult and impossible things. Um, um, and that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm generous myself and give recognition where it's due and trying to keep people motivated and inspired. Um, I think if they were critical, they might say that I, you know, I have no limits and boundaries. I'm, you know, always trying to do more. I'm not really cognizant about physical limits in the real world. Um, uh, and, and then, you know, a perennial font of ideas that they're then having to like jump on and catch and execute. Um, and I think, you know, those, I, I try to do be more of the former than of the latter, but I think um, being conscious of your own leadership strengths and, and style and, and cognizant of, of how you can help your team and empower your team as opposed to impede them is a very important um, dimension of leadership. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like curiosity is kind of what you can, you inspire them to have, or at least you, you said that it is something that drives you. Certain forms of work and certain forms of jobs can involve, um, you know, an endless uh, repetition of the things that you need to do in order to make, um, you know, ends meet. And trying to make the 60 to 70 hours a, a week that you're putting into your work, um, something that is energizing and interesting and inspiring and filled with purpose and meaning 
makes those hours go quicker. Um, and it also, I think, makes you better at what you do. So I think curiosity definitely helps. Paul, I'm not going to ask you which of your children you love more, but I'm curious of all the issues out there, climate change and political issues and so on, what do you think is the single most important sort of social issue facing the world today? You know, if you think about right right now about the grips of what we're in with the coronavirus, um, the coronavirus, as horrific as it is, and as once in a century a phenomenon that it is, and the the tremendous impact it will have on lives and on the economy that it will have. Um, Climate change is like corona without a vaccine. And by that, I mean, once we let the the climate out of the Pandora's box of climate change, once it starts occurring, it becomes irreversible because of the feedback loops. And if we wait too late, it will be like Corona all the time. So I think this is the first time in history where humanity is potentially going to inflict upon itself um, an injury from which there is no capacity to recover. Um, And therefore, if you kind of think of a hierarchy of challenges, not to put climate at the top, I think, is to make a big mistake. That being said, the way that we tackle climate has to engage with all the other challenges that humanity faces. Because if you try and, for example, impose a carbon tax without thinking how that carbon tax might differentially impact the lives of the rich and the poor, and if it adversely affects the poor more, and the poor then become enemies of the carbon tax, like you've seen in the Gilets Jaunes, for example, in in France, then you haven't engaged in your climate activism in a way that is in itself sustainable. So the prism that I like to think about is our our highest goal has to um, make this planet livable for our children and our grandchildren. And the way we go about doing that has to take into account the compendium of other injustices that we are currently facing and incorporate them into a holistic way of dealing with the climate challenge. That's interesting. One of the things that I can't stop thinking about is if you look at the, like I live in downtown Dallas, I look out over the city, I can see the highways and I can see planes taking off from one of the airports. Like the amount of transportation and sort of factory emissions and everything that's happening right now is probably pretty close to the amount that we need to have in order to really improve the the climate change trend. And yet when we see that total lack of of mobility and activity and we see the effect on the economy, it it really is kind of um, unnerving to me. Have you thought about that at all? Or am I just sort of alone wallowing in that sad thought? We desperately need economic activity, engagement, transport, mobility to achieve our aspirations uh, as a species. Um, And I think one of the, the great causes for optimism right now is that there are literally trillions of dollars to be made 
in the transition to a more sustainable economy. And if you just catalog each of those areas, it's just a giant green bonanza waiting to happen. Um, there's a trillion dollars of opportunity in offshore wind alone. There's a trillion dollars of opportunity in battery storage alone. There are several trillion dollars of opportunity in pivoting to a new, more sustainable, healthy food economy. There are tens of trillions of dollars uh, in redefining our built environment in not only the new buildings that have to be constructed in a more sustainable way, but also repurposing uh, and retrofitting existing buildings. And so this kind of um, trade-off between economic activity, sustainability, and public health, um, I think is, is a false dichotomy. There, is, there are ways of squaring this. We have to do it in a purposeful way, and there may be some forms of consumption that we have to do without, um, but we don't have to do without all consumption. And net net, we can be more prosperous en route to a more sustainable planet. Um, we just have to do it. Uh, and we need leaders who guide us there. We need corporate leaders who pivot fast and we need citizens to keep us, um, you know, hold our feet to the fire and keep us honest. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Let's do it. Yeah. And the, you know, achieving the the sustainable development goals, I think, creates a $3 trillion market as well and 380 million jobs. Um, So I think positioning as a market opportunity is extremely smart to attract private capital. Before we go, um, I know you also have studied many members clubs. You hired some folks from the Soho House, for example. I'm sure you know what the wing is doing. Um, and I would love to hear your your thoughts just on kind of communities in general, and then taking that one step farther and telling us where we can expect the conduit in five, 10 years time. Yeah, I mean, one of the hard things is, you know, we, um, prior to this, um, to the, to Corona, we, um, were really on the verge of signing up a club in New York. I still very much hope that we will do that. We have really a wonderful opportunity and have identified a really great, um, a building, uh, and, and of, of very, you know, very keen to kind of get New York up and running, um, I think there are wonderful opportunities um, in in Scandinavia, and we're in conversation with a with a wonderful group in Oslo to establish a conduit. Um, I think the West Coast in the United States is a place where um, both in you know San Francisco and the Bay Area and in LA there are real opportunities if you if you think this through carefully enough. Um, and then there are a cluster of cities, you know ranging from Toronto to Berlin to Singapore, where, um, you know, I think the conduit it would be applicable. So we have a holding company. It is very much um, uh, set up in order to proliferate conduits where there are communities of people who are passionate about change. Um, and we will go where we think um, those communities are looking to be gathered. Excellent. That's really exciting. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you today and to have this conversation with you. You're extremely thoughtful and 
a leader that um, I certainly admire and um, wishing you all the best in this time. And, and um, you know, of course, please, please let us all know how we can how we can help you and how we can serve you as well. Well, that's very kind. I will say I remember we, we have a very rigorous membership application process. And uh, I actually remember uh, with the kind of vividness, which is somewhat inexplicable, getting your membership application to the conduit and reading through your bio and what you had done and said, going, this is exactly the kind of person we want to have join our community. So um, we are, um, it's a mutual admiration society and I'm so delighted to have you as part of the community and, and also just for all the other work that you, you do around the world. So very, very nice to, to be in touch in this format as well. Thank you. Have a good rest of your evening. Thanks very much. Thanks, Paul, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure having you. Learned a lot. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Ciao. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.